This is On the Ground. For young people on the front lines of the climate crisis, the crisis is not a future reality, but rather a present one that fills them with anxiety, depression, and uncertainty about what is permanent. I want the entirety of Congress, in fact, the whole U.S. government, to remember the fear and despair that my generation lives with every day, and I want you to hold on to it. How do I even begin to convey to you what it feels like to know that within my lifetime, the destruction that we have already seen from the climate crisis will only get worse? DC activists march and rally in the global climate strike, demanding that U.S. lawmakers treat the climate crisis like the emergency it is. No more coal! No more oil! Keep that climate in the soil! No more coal! No more oil! Keep that climate in the soil! No more coal! No more oil! Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Activist energy in D.C. this week is building up to two major climate actions. The global climate strike happening today as we go to broadcast on Friday, September 20th, 2019, and the planned shutdown of the nation's capital on Monday, September 23rd, to demand urgent action by the U.S. government on the climate crisis. At an organizing meeting Wednesday night at the Friends Meeting House in Northwest D.C., the Reverend Lennox Yearwood of the Hip Hop Caucus and before him, author Naomi Klein spoke about the necessity for mass civil disobedience to spur lawmakers to action. The fact that you are willing to come together and declare a people's emergency from below in this city um, none of us want this, right? I mean, none of us think that this is the way we should be responding to an existential crisis like this. We wish we had leadership in power that would actually lead, but we don't actually have that. Because the kind of policy making that happens in this city, and here I'm not just talking about the Republicans, okay, I'm also talking about the Democrats, is completely untethered from what the scientists have been telling us we need to do, the scale of change that is required. Students, union members, and parent organizations are among the broad coalition rallying at the U.S. Capitol and at the White House today as part of the strike, which is happening for the next six days in 142 countries. The U.S. war machine, the U.S. military, is the biggest single polluter on the planet. And as climate activists from around the country demand action, the Trump administration continued to float trial balloons about the idea of war with Iran in retaliation for what it says are drone strikes by Iran on oil facilities in Saudi Arabia last weekend. 
The administration makes this claim despite the Houthi rebels in Yemen taking responsibility for the strikes. Well, to unpack this and other international stories, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. So, Gerald, please start with reacting to where we are in this constant ratcheting up of tensions with Iran. Well, certainly, if you pay more for a gallon of gas rather shortly, you should blame Mr. Trump, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. In light of the fact that a few days ago, a major oil facility, as you suggested, in Saudi Arabia was apparently attacked. This was in the wake of months of Saudi bombing of Yemen right across the Red Sea from Ethiopia and Somalia. And this bombing was conducted by dint of U.S. arms, leading to the deaths of thousands. Now, this might raise the question of how did Iran get roped into being accused of being those who sent these drones into Saudi Arabia. Well, the Yemeni force that is battling the Saudis is said to be an Iranian proxy. Now, ironically, this is another case of Washington creating problems, then destroying the problem, and then creating another problem, and so on ad infinitum. I mean, recall not so long ago, you had a People's Democratic Republic of Yemen ruled by a left-wing socialist party that the United States opposed. And therefore, not unlike what happened in Afghanistan, the United States sought to undermine that particular regime, which has therefore led to their demise and the rise of various forms of religious zealotry in its place. And so, as a result, you see the deterioration of the conflict in Yemen, And it's worsened even more, I'm afraid to say, by the fact that this crisis in Israel is causing Israeli hawks to look for an external factor to unite the Israeli population behind a common goal. I'm speaking of the fact that as we speak, it appears that Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party has suffered another setback which could lead to a third election within weeks or a few months. But in any case, what is striking about this Israeli election is the significant turnout by the Israeli Arab population, which has outraged not only the Likud party, but also the party of the apparent kingmaker of Israeli politics, speaking of Avigdor Lieberman, a former bouncer, in Soviet-era Moldova in Eastern Europe, and now a leading kingmaker, as noted, in Israel. What was also curious with regard to this Yemeni alleged attack was that uh, it took place as the president of Russia and the president of Iran and the president of Turkey were meeting, and Mr. Putin rather drolly suggested that the Saudis might be better off by investing in Russian military defense, as has Turkey and Iran. And even though this was not taken very seriously in the U.S. press, the Saudis might be well advised to look in that direction because clearly the billions they've invested in U.S. military uh, defense has not worked very well. As for Washington, it's waffling. Uh, Keep in mind that 
only a day or so ago, the 45th U.S. president seemed to waffle in his support for Mr. Netanyahu. Perhaps this is connected to what we talked about recently. That is to say, their mutual patron, Sheldon Adelson, the Las Vegas billionaire, has had a falling out with Mr. Netanyahu, and perhaps this, this has affected Mr. Trump's opinion of the apparently outgoing Israeli prime minister. But I think a New York Times columnist captured the dilemma of Washington best when he suggested that Mr. Trump is an example of a politician who talks loudly and carries a small stick, a reverse of the mantra that was enunciated by then U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt at the dawning of U.S. imperialism about a century ago, when he said that Washington should speak softly and carry a big stick. That is to say that the international community is beginning to suspect that Mr. Trump is full of bluster and is wary about absorbing casualties on the U.S. side. Well, a lot of people assume that with John Bolton either resigning or being fired, that the issue with Iran would cool off, and it sounds like the opposite is happening. Um, what's your comment on his replacement, Robert O'Brien? Well, as you know, Mr. O'Brien wrote a book where he trashed the nuclear court with Iran. But I have a question that hopefully can be crowd uh, investigated. Uh, in the 1980s, Robert O'Brien spent a year in South Africa in the Orange Free State the equivalent of Alabama or Mississippi in apartheid-era South Africa. In fact, he speaks fluent Afrikaans. He may be the only national security advisor in U.S. history who speaks fluent Afrikaans, the language of the Afrikaner minority, the former ruling elite in apartheid South Africa. Not only that, but he comes out of the political science department of UCLA, which during that particular historical moment was quite close, interestingly enough, to the apartheid authorities. I think that with regard to U.S. policy in Africa and U.S. foreign policy in Southern Africa more specifically, we really need to know more about Mr. O'Brien's tenure in apartheid-era South Africa because hopefully that'll be quite enlightening and revealing and may also shed light upon his plans, for example, for Iran as well. We don't normally speak much about the climate crisis in terms of this you know, world news segment, but I thought it was interesting that the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres basically blocked the U.S. and other kind of coal-supporting, I should say, countries and economies from speaking at the upcoming uh, climate summit. And this has, I guess, outraged a number of countries, but the United States uh, is included in those major economies that will not be allowed to participate. I don't know if you remember when they had the last climate summit in Poland, uh, even actually a few summits now, there's been this embarrassment of the United States going to a climate summit and promoting fossil fuels. So that's something that's happening related to international news and our main thrust for the program today. And I 
in terms of researching that, I noticed that people in Mozambique are still recovering from Hurricane I-Day. And of course, the toll in the Bahamas is still not really clear. Well, I think that's important, this initiative of the United Nations Secretary General, particularly in light of Mr. Trump's recent maneuver to deprive California of the ability to set its own auto emission standards. Mr. Trump obviously is going against this alleged cardinal principle of the Republican Party of believing in states' rights. But I'm afraid that it gets even worse, although I would like to salute uh, Julian Castro, the Democratic presidential aspirant, who's put forward a very innovative proposal concerning adding a new uh, provision to U.S. immigration law that would allow for admission to the United States of, of quote, climate refugees, unquote. Uh, this is a provision that, if in place now, would hopefully uh, ease the arrival into South Florida of those fleeing Hurricane Dorian. But in any case, uh, I think it's appropriate for the United States to be barred from the podium at this climate summit, since clearly it is seeking to wreck the climate, not save the climate. Well, we will certainly keep watch on all of these issues because unfortunately they're not going away. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Well, today's climate movement is making the links between capitalist exploitation and the legacies of slavery and colonization. As the D.C. activists participate in the global climate strike today, a coalition of organizations and families from Alabama are rallying at Pershing Park at 14th and Pennsylvania Avenue in Northwest D.C., beginning at 4 p.m. They are demanding that the Department of Justice take action after the department released a report in April detailing ongoing violent and unsafe conditions in Alabama prisons. One coalition member currently imprisoned released a statement that says, quote, Prisons in Alabama are functioning in the same exact manner. Men are being murdered, assaulted, raped, overdosing, and being denied mental and medical care constantly. These conditions have become frequent in ADOC, meaning the Alabama Department of Corrections, I believe, is failing to report the many incidents that take place in order to gain favor in the eyes of the federal agencies involved in investigating ADOC and to gain favor with you, the public, end quote. The press conference and rally by the group Unheard Voices, SOTCJ, is a call to action originating from the Free Alabama Movement which is credited with sparking high-profile prison strikes in recent years. The House Oversight and Reform Committee held its first hearing on D.C. statehood in more than 25 years on yesterday, Thursday, September 19th. The legislation, H.R. 51, is co-sponsored by a record 219 members. Also coming up on the Hill, Monday, September 23rd, the International Secretariat of the December 12th Movement in collaboration with Representative Karen Bass, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Africa, will hold a briefing for transparency and analysis of the decades-old policy of economic sanctions against the Republic of Zimbabwe. And that's starting at 8 a.m. 
in room HC5-2059 of the Rayburn House Office Building. On Tuesday, September 24th, the first congressional hearing on what everyone knows as Trump's Muslim ban will be held, also beginning at 8 a.m. in the Rayburn House Office Building. And finally, news from the D.C. Council, a citizen group called Sack Jack, is dedicated to ousting Councilman Jack Evans because of his proven corruption and ties to big business. This week, in front of the Wilson Building, Sack Jack staged a mock edition of the TV show The Shark Tank, where actors imitated big businesses offering to give Evans money in exchange for access and votes. Well, Jack, you made a very convincing pitch. I'd like to offer you $50,000 to investigate one of my top competitors to steer business my way. How's that sound to you? Thank you so much. <laughs> According to their website, Sackjack formed after the FBI raided Councilman Evans' home in Georgetown earlier this year. The raid was the latest development in an ongoing federal grand jury investigation against him for peddling his power as an elected official for private financial gain. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, youth climate activists speak out on Capitol Hill. Stay with us. introduce our witnesses. Greta Thunberg is from Sweden. Uh, she's a climate activist who helped build the Fridays for Future movement, where she began going on strike from school outside the Swedish parliament on Fridays. She has spoken on the climate crisis before the EU parliament. Welcome. Ms. Jamie Margolin is from Seattle, Washington. She's co-founder of the co-executive and co-executive director of the Zero Hour, an international youth climate organization founded in the summer of 2017. She's also a plaintiff in Piper v. State of Washington. Mr. Vic Barrett is from White Plains, New York. He's a fellow with the Alliance for Climate Education and a plaintiff in Juliana versus United States. Welcome. I'll now go to... Uh, Ms. Thunberg for her statement. My name is Greta Thunberg. 
I have not come to offer any prepared remarks at this hearing. I am instead attaching my testimony. It is the IPCC Special Report on Global Warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius, the SR 1.5, which was released on October 8, 2018. I am submitting this report as my testimony because I don't want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to the scientists. And I want you to unite behind the science. And then I want you to take real action. Thank you. Taxumaket. Bismarck Golan. My name is Jamie Margolin, and I'm a 17-year-old climate justice activist from Seattle, Washington. I'm missing a lot of school to be here. It's my senior year of high school. I have college application deadlines looming over me, and to be honest, I've barely even started because I'm too busy fighting to make sure that I'm actually going to have the future I'm applying to study for. You're here spending a few moments with me, but that is nothing compared to the hours that members of Congress have spent with lobbyists from corporations that make billions of dollars off of the destruction of my generation's future. I want the entirety of Congress, in fact, the whole U.S. government, to remember the fear and despair that my generation lives with every day, and I want you to hold on to it. How do I even begin to convey to you what it feels like to know that within my lifetime, the destruction that we have already seen from the climate crisis will only get worse? What adds insult to injury is the fact that we keep getting promised what isn't there, on college applications, I keep getting asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? The media, pop culture, businesses, and the whole world tells me that I and my whole generation will have something to look forward to that we just don't. You're promising me lies. Everyone who will walk up to me after this testimony saying that I have such a bright future ahead of me will be lying to my face. It doesn't matter how talented we are. It doesn't matter how much work we put in, how many dreams we have. The reality is my generation has been committed to a planet that is collapsing. The fact that you are staring at a panel of young people testifying before you today, pleading for a livable earth, should not fill you with pride. It should fill you with shame. Youth climate activism should not have to exist. We are exhausted because we have tried everything. We've built organizations, organized marches, and worked on political campaigns. I sued my state government in a lawsuit called Piper versus the State of Washington, along with 12 other plaintiffs, for contributing to the climate crisis and denying my generation's constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property. The lawsuit is also arguing that the natural resources of my state are protected as a right under the Washington State Constitution. The shellfish, salmon, orcas, and all of the beautiful wildlife of my Pacific Northwest home is dying due to ocean acidification caused by the climate crisis, and communities all over Seattle are suffering from the new fossil fuel infrastructure being built to lock in decades more of climate destruction into my state. My friends and I were warned to stay inside the last two summers because our city was shrouded in a suffocating smoke from wildfires. It gave me such bad headaches for so long, and my friends with respiratory illnesses had to go to the ER. Is this the future that we have to look forward to? Well, we the youth are working as hard as we can to make sure that it isn't. 
On July 21st of 2018, after an entire year of nonstop organizing, despite being full-time high school students with a lot of homework to do, my organization, Zero Hour, uh, marched on Washington, D.C. in a pouring rainstorm and in 25 cities around the world, demanding urgent climate action from you and all of our leaders. And that was only the beginning. But by 2030, we will know if we have created the political climate that will have allowed us to salvage life on Earth or if we acted too late. By then, we must be well on the path to climate recovery, but this must start today. In fact, it should have started yesterday. By 2030, I will be old enough to run for Congress and be seated right where you guys are sitting right now. By then, we need to have already achieved net zero greenhouse gas emissions and be rapidly on the path to climate recovery. I can't wait until I'm sitting in your seats to change the climate crisis. You have to use the seats that you have now, because by the time I get there, it's going to be way too late. The good news is that experts agree that there are multiple pathways to decarbonize the United States energy system, and that doing so is both technologically and economically viable and beneficial. The most frustrating thing is that the U.S. government can't even begin to imagine the massive political shift that has to happen in order for us to solve this issue. The politics just hasn't been invented yet. Solving the climate crisis goes against everything that our country was unfortunately built on. Colonialism, slavery, and natural resource extraction. This is why the youth are calling for a new era altogether. As Greta mentioned, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that we only have a few months left in order to create the massive political shift needed to transition our world to an entirely renewable energy economy. This needs to happen within the next 10 years, which is our deadline to save life as we know it. People call my generation, Generation Z, as if we are the last generation, but we are not. We are refusing to be the last letter in the alphabet. I am here before the whole country today, announcing that we are instead Generation GND, the generation of the Green New Deal. The only thing that will save us is a whole new era. The Green New Deal is not just about the specific plans laid out in resolutions. It's about a new chapter in American history and transforming our culture into one that celebrates, encourages, and enables radical climate action. It is right here, testifying before you, that I am proud to announce that history is being made. You've heard of the Reagan era, the New Deal era. Well, the youth are bringing about the era of the Green New Deal. Thank you, Mr. Barrett. My name is Vic Barrett. I'm 20 years old, and I'm one of the 21 youth plaintiffs in the Juliana versus United States constitutional lawsuit, suing the executive branch of the federal government for knowingly causing climate change. I'd like to recognize my fellow co-plaintiffs in this room sitting behind me. I'm a first-generation Garifuna American. My people are an Afro-Indigenous community, originally from the island of St. Vincent in the Caribbean. In the 18th and 19th centuries, we were pushed from our homeland on St. Vincent by British colonial power, settling on the eastern coast of Central America in Honduras and Belize. Despite overwhelming adversity, we organized our community and emancipated ourselves to protect our future as a people. However, the struggle continues for me and my people. As temperatures increase, sea levels rise, storms become more intense and frequent, and the coral reefs and fisheries upon which we depend disappear, the oceanfront land that my family has inhabited for generations and that I'm supposed to inherit will be underwater if the U.S. federal government continues to promote a fossil fuel-based energy system. 
It is not just me and my people in Honduras being harmed by climate change. Frontline communities around the country and around the world are already feeling the effects of the climate crisis from the dispossession of land to, to the grave public health threats that are disproportionately affecting myself and other young people. These frontline communities are made up of people who look like me, young, black, and brown, LGBTQ, indigenous, identities which place them at a significantly higher risk to experience the impacts of climate change than the general populace due to their marginalized status in our society. I myself have felt the consequences of climate change directly. Growing up in New York, I was impacted by the climate change-fueled Hurricane Sandy, which left my family and school without power for days. I still experience grave anxiety about experiencing another climate-driven disaster like Superstorm Sandy and the harm that these storms will have on myself and my family. As someone who already struggles with anxiety and struggles with depression from my understanding of climate change and what I experience, watching our government knowingly perpetuate the climate crisis is extremely overwhelming. I wrestle with this anxiety every day from the moment that I wake up in the morning to the moment I fall asleep at night. If we keep going on with business as usual, both Honduras and New York, the places where my family and I are from, will forever be lost to the sea. That is one of my greatest fears, that climate change is going to take these places away from us. My co-plaintiffs also experience both the mental and physical health impacts of climate change. My co-plaintiffs with asthma and allergies have suffered from the prolonged wildfire and allergy seasons in the West, limiting their ability to participate in certain activities or even go outside. Many of them, like me, are also struggling with psychological harms from climate change. The medical community now recognizes climate change as a grave public health threat. One of our experts describes climate change as a public health emergency, which is disproportionately impacting children and youth in a myriad of ways. He lists specific health threats exacerbated by climate change, including heat stress, extreme weather events, wildfires, decreased air quality, and infectious disease, all of which pose a disproportionate threat to children and to youth. Another one of our experts, Dr. Lise Van Susteren, a psychiatrist known nationally for her work on climate change, explains that, quote, with continued government actions that exacerbate the climate crisis, the plaintiffs and those they represent will suffer catastrophic emotional injuries. She goes on to state that the federal government's, quote, sanctioning of climate change as lawful in federal law and policy makes the psychological injury suffered by individuals, including the plaintiffs, particularly harmful and insidious. She warns that without immediate action by the federal government to address climate change, the mental health impacts will worsen and be lifelong. Just as my federal government sanctioned discrimination in schools and housing until the middle of the last century, a policy that harmed children, my federal government has also orchestrated and sanctioned a system of fossil fuel energy that is harming children in another way, irreversibly threatening our health, our personal security, our homes, and our communities by recreating a dangerous climate system. Like youth who have come before us in the civil rights movement and other social justice movements, it is often the youth that must shine a light on systems of injustice. So in 2015, 21 young people, myself included, filed a lawsuit against the United States and agencies of the executive branch to safeguard our constitutional right to life, liberty, and property, including our rights to personal security, bodily integrity, and a stable climate system that sustains our lives and liberties. I was born into a world in which my future and my past are uncertain, born into a world where my culture and inheritance are literally slipping into the sea, born into a world where my people are going extinct. Show children everywhere that you care about our future and the future of all generations to come. 
Now is your time to stand in solidarity with me and my co-plaintiffs, America's youth, and communities around the world to fight for a just future free from catastrophic climate change. Thank you. Thank all the witnesses for their testimony and their urgency. Uh, it came through uh, in all of your testimony. Uh, I now recognize myself for less than five minutes uh, so that we can get as many people to uh, ask questions as possible. Uh, I'll start just with uh, Ms. Toonbury. Uh, you chose to submit uh, the IPCC report in lieu of your written testimony. Uh, could you expand on why it's so important to listen to the science? Well, I don't see a reason to not listen to the science. It's such, just such a thing that we should be taking for granted that we listen to the current best available United Science. It's just something that everyone should do. This is not political opinions, political views or my opinions. This is, this is the science. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, in all of your testimony, not just urgency uh, came through when I was listening uh, to what you had to say, uh, but uh, as someone from another generation listening, uh, the last thing we would want for the generations to follow for our children, grandchildren, uh, and other people's children and grandchildren is to hear in some of your remarks uh, actual fear and anxiety uh, being expressed. Uh, could you, uh, each of you, that you can jump right in as you see fit, uh, comment on what that's like. Uh, I, I think that that message should be heard by all of us. Not just urgency, but what are we doing to the next generation? How are their lives impacted uh, by what we're not doing uh, and what we're doing? So if you could, uh, I'll let you just uh, choose among yourselves. Each of you will have a chance to answer that question. For, for me, it's, it's really been affecting because similar to Vic, I already have like underlying issues of like anxiety. And it's just really hard to grow up in a world full of ifs. You know, I don't think a lot of people in Congress understand the conversations that are happening in everyday American high schools. But we're constantly asked, prepare for your future, study for your future, do this for your future. Um, but our, our world is full of ifs. I'll be talking to my best friend and she'll be like, yeah, you know, I really want to see this natural place sometime if it's going to still be around. Um, I really want to study to be this if that's still going to be a possibility. And it's just like this constant looming uncertainty. And it's this weird form of, of nihilism and, and weird, um, just fear that's, that's been existing in my generation where kids are joking like, what is even like the point, the, the world is, is ending. What are we studying for? What are we doing? Um, and it's this kind of depression. It's this fear that is not just among me or my panelists here, but, but everyone. And that anxiety is something that no child should ever have to fear. Because if you think about it, if you go back to what is the purpose of a parent, um, down to just the biological um, purpose. It's to, to give their child the best future and the best life that they can possibly have. And the, Amer the, the supposed American dream is to make sure that children have a better future than the adults. But right now, it's like some members of government and some corporations are actively pointing a gun to children's 
futures and actively making it worse, actively going out of their way to support corporations and poison us and destroy our future. And that is horrifying and it feels like a betrayal. It's like a knife to the heart to know that people who have kids, they'll go around in these campaign ads and they'll be like holding these babies like, oh, you should vote for me. Look at me interacting with a small child while they actively poison and choose their wallets over their children. So it's it's very devastating and scary, but it's also... It feels like we've been betrayed. Uh, in less than a minute, would anyone else like to uh, comment on that? Uh, young people are in the midst of their development. Adolescence isn't characterized as being easy without um, also dealing with the greatest existential threat of our time. <coughs> Chairwoman Castor. Despite recent emissions reductions, the United States is currently the second highest emitting country in the world annually. And although we rank number two now, the United States is responsible for the most carbon pollution accumulated in the atmosphere. Uh, some people say that the United States should not dramatically reduce our emissions because China and other countries aren't doing enough. I'd like to have your view on that and have each of the witnesses comment on that briefly. Yeah, um, I would say what, what you said is totally correct. The United States contributes to 25% of um, historic emissions in the world. Uh, and if we are the country that we say we are, if we're the leaders that we say we are, we need to lead by example here and work on our what we're doing here so that the rest of the world can follow our lead. I have a question. When your children ask you, did you do absolutely everything in your power to stop the climate crisis when the storms are getting worse and we're seeing all the effects of the climate crisis, when they ask you, did you do everything? Can you really look them in the eye and say, no, sorry, I couldn't do anything because that country over there didn't do anything, so if they're not going to do it, then I'm not. That is shameful and that is cowardly. And there is no excuse to not take action, to not improve how, as much as we can in the United States. And how can we call ourselves um, the city on a hill if, or the, an example for the world if we're going to be cowards and hide behind waiting for other people saying that I'm not going to do this because they didn't. I want you to think about this is all about being able to look your children in the eye and say I did absolutely everything I could for you. I know that we're up against a lot of pressure. I know that the time is running out, but like my to honey, however you call your kids, I did everything I could. And so I just don't understand as a parent, how can you look your kid in the eye and say there's this impending crisis. Everything is at stake. But I stood back and I didn't really do anything. I didn't take action. I didn't act like it was an emergency because our neighbors over there weren't doing it. So I'm just not going to. How can you tell your children that? I think I don't need to add anything but just another perspective. I am from Sweden, a small country, and there it is the same argument. Why should we do anything? Just look at the U.S., they say. So, uh, just so you know, that's, that is being used against you as well. <laughs> you are listening to young climate activists speaking on Wednesday, September 18, 2019, 
before a joint hearing of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Europe, Eurasia, Energy and the Environment, and the House Climate Crisis Committee. Speaking last was 16-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg. Also speaking was 17-year-old high school student Jamie Margolin of Seattle, Washington, and Vic Barnett of White Plains, New York. The hearing was chaired by Representative Bill Keating, Democrat of Massachusetts. Chairman Spenberg. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. I hold your commitment to fighting for the future generations of this planet in the highest esteem, and I'm grateful for the attention you're bringing to these critical issues through your advocacy. Ms. Toonberry, you mentioned, apart from the security aspect of things, that you have spoken with many who have faced disasters at home due to global climate change. Could you perhaps give a couple of examples just for the committee to hear of the stories you've heard? Yes, I have met people who, whose communities were simply, whose neighborhoods were destroyed by natural disasters who were amplified by the climate crisis. I've met people whose food and water supply is being threatened by, by environmental or climate-related catastrophes. And uh, it's just... It's so sad that I, it's so incredibly many people, so incredibly many examples that, that it's just horrible because so many who have experienced this and so many who are suffering from this today. And uh, 
I mean, we are already seeing the consequences, unacceptable consequences of this today, and it will only get worse the longer we delay action unless we start to act now. Thank you very much. I would also like to add, um, answering that question, I would like to acknowledge that we have some Amazon protectors in the room right now um, who are fighting to protect the Amazon rainforest, and that is a place in the world where people are gravely suffering, not exactly from climate change itself, but from the causes of the climate crisis. The animal agriculture industry is behind, and the, the collusion of the animal agriculture industry with the governments of Brazil and other countries that would rather make a short-term profit than protect the lungs of our planet. The Amazon rainforest is the lungs of our planet. Um, and that's why we're seeing these massive fires, and it is indigenous protectors like the ones here um, sitting who have been fighting, literally putting their bodies on the line um, and, and suffering from these fires. And I don't want to speak for them because I don't know their own stories, but I encourage you to talk to them later. Um, but I think it's also very important that as we speak from an American perspective, we also realize that uh, the climate crisis is global and that even though maybe, um, you know, for me personally, I have Latin American roots and that my family is from Colombia. But even if you don't have those roots in Latin America, um, the Amazon rainforest is the lungs of our planet. And so it burning down, we must unite with Latin America and we must unite with the indigenous activists. And um, listen to them and give them a platform and also not perpetuate the same systems of oppression that have been pushing them down because because it is, and I don't want to speak for this, and I don't know if Vic, you have anything to add, but it is this, the same systems of oppression that are causing the climate crisis that are making um, people feel the worst effects. To add to something that uh, I heard earlier, I just want to say real quick, I realize my time is running out, but Albert Einstein defined insanity as trying to solve an issue with the same thinking that caused it. And right now, something that has been disturbing me a lot is seeing the way that we are trying to colonize and buy and sell our way out of a problem caused by colonization and buying and selling. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, I'm over time. I yield back. Well, thank you. Representative Lujan. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And to all of the chairs and ranking members for bringing us together today, to all of the panelists, to our witnesses who are here with us today, I, I want to thank you as well. Um, before I begin my questions, though, I, I just want to remind my colleagues that those, those mobile phones that were once too big or a desktop that weighed thousands of pounds, they got smaller because of federal taxpayer investment by the United States of America investing in the research. So I hope that there's an openness and a willingness that we take the same step. Let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's make sure that we're investing those dollars and that we're answering this call. And Ms. Thunberg, I, I appreciate the power of your testimony. You laid it out in a document right in front of us. A document where experts and scientists have laid out the path and the road for the world to take policy action. It's simple. The work's been done for us. We just have to follow that path. So I want to thank you for that. And now I don't want to have to defend one of my colleagues as well. She can defend herself, as we all know. Congresswoman Cortez, or Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has not said that she wants to stop air travel. Her policies have said, let's do better. Let's act. And I think that that's what we're here to do. So... I apologize, I took a little bit of my time to, to respond to some of the statements that were said earlier, but I thought it was imp important. So, Ms. Thunberg, when I was your age, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere 
was 350 parts per million. This year we eclipsed 415 parts per million. I'm going to try to make some sense out of this. What many scientists have said is that we only can get to 430 parts per million to get to an increase of 1.5 degrees or be able to even hold at 1.5 degrees increase. If we get to 450 parts per million, again, we're at 415 already, that gets us to 2 degrees. Let me share what that means. With 1.5 degrees, 14% of the global population will face extreme heat. At 2%, it's 37%. At 1.5 degrees, we will see an ice-free Arctic once every 100 years. At 2 degrees, we see it every 10 years. At 1.5 degrees, our fisheries decline by 1.5 million tons and our coral reefs decline by at least 70%. At 2 degrees, our fisheries will decline by twice that and we'll lose 99% of our coral reefs. We see the difference between what is devastating and what is even beyond what devastating can even be described as. Ms. Thunberg, the science could not be more clear. If we wait, the climate crisis will only be more devastating. Just a year ago, you were protesting outside the Swedish parliament. Now, you are part of an international coalition of young people demanding action. I asked a few students that I have the honor of working with in New Mexico, and one of them responded. Her name is Marina Weber-Stevens. She's one of the founding members of the Global Warming Express Anyone that's interested can find them at theglobalwarmingexpress.org. And she asked a very important question, but one that I think you have an answer to, and it's this. What is the best way to get the younger generation, teens and students involved in advocacy to address the climate crisis? And I would add to that, adults. What can we be doing? How can we get more young people involved? Um, how we can get more young people involved. Um, I think to just tell them the truth, tell them how it is. And um, because when I found out how it actually was, that made me furious. So I was, I wanted to do something about it. And that is the... At least I've spoken to many, and I think that is the experience many others have. Because as it is now, people in general don't seem to be very aware of mm. the actual science and the, how severe this crisis actually is. So I just think we need to inform them and start treating this crisis like, like the existential emergency it is. Then I think people will understand and want to do something about it. You have been listening to young climate activists speaking on Wednesday, September 18, 2019, before a joint hearing of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Europe, Eurasia, Energy, and the Environment, and the House Climate Crisis Committee. Speaking last was 16-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg, being questioned by Representative Ben Luan of New Mexico. Also speaking was 17-year-old high school student Jamie Margolin of Seattle, Washington, and Vic Barnett of White Plains, New York. The hearing was chaired by Representative Bill Keating, Democrat of Massachusetts, two days before today's global climate strike.
on the ground caught up with some participants in today's strike as they held a pre-rally at the Silver Spring Metro Station and prepared to take the train down and join the larger rally at John Marshall Park. No more coal! No more oil! Keep that carbon in the soil! No more coal! No more oil! Keep that carbon in the soil! No more coal! No more oil! Keep that carbon in the soil! I'm Terry Monzo. I've been active in climate issues for years. I had just about given up, and then I heard about these kids, so they are the hope of the future and the only hope we have. You said that they're the only hope. Um, Why do you feel that way? Because my generation, I'm 81 years old, my generation hasn't accomplished a thing. Yeah. And so they are the only hope we have. The thing that's getting the old folks is the grandchildren. We are all so concerned about our grandchildren. I mean, what are they going to be living with in 20 years, 25 years? It's really scary. And and some of them, the littler ones, have no idea what's going on. It's sort of like Santa Claus, you know? They're sort of happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very sad. Yeah. So tell, tell me your name. And I see you have an Extinction Rebellion going yes. on. Yes. My name is Walter Ebmeyer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what, are you a member of Extinction Rebellion? Yeah. People think of that as a young young people's movement, but obviously it's not, right? Well, we can glue ourselves to the Houses of Parliament as well as anybody. <laughs> I'm Herb Simmons, and I'm here because the future success of the climate movement depends upon this generation acting, and they're starting to do that, and we want to know, we want them to know we're behind them. And um, what, what do you think is the first thing that should be done? I mean, you know, after the march... What would you like to see happen? I think the most important thing is a massive public awareness program. We passed the point where we have to make people aware it's a, an enormous problem, but what to do and what are the key policies that have to be implemented because some take us forward and some don't. And that's the next step, an educated and active group of aware aware folks. Uh, my name is Danielle Maitive and I'm a climate scientist and oceanographer by training. And I'm out here because I mean as much as I love science and absolutely respect everything the scientists are doing, what we need now is a movement. We need political will and courage and leadership so that we can actually listen to what the science is telling us is needed because we know what we need to do. The science is really clear on the timelines, on the extent of reductions and drawdown we need. Um, but the politicians are just, they're talking like it's 1950 or 1850. Right, right. What, what do you think is needed to break that deadlock? I mean, is it just voting them out of office? or? I mean, I think voting them out of office is the minimum, but we need, we need a large-scale mobile movement. We need a moral reckoning. We need, hopefully we don't actually need a Pearl Harbor, but we need a moral Pearl Harbor where people say, this can't be. Like, we are literally destroying our children's future. They will, you know, we look at the upheaval of one million people fleeing violence in Syria and how the world doesn't know how to handle that and, and you know, isn't opening their arms and hearts to those folks. And what happens when it's 20 million or 200 million or a billion um, when the entire country of Bangladesh needs to be relocated and all the Pacific Islands and China gets hit with a typhoon or it's, I mean, we're talking about billions and billions of people and we need not only a movement to deal with the science and the rebuilding our economies, 
so that they're um, carbon neutral, but we also need a movement to to change our societies, you know, to change, to, to open our hearts, because even if we do everything right, there's still going to be hundreds of millions of refugees, and we can't have, you know, these petty fights over borders and who's the right ethnicity or the right color or the right religion when the whole world needs to come together just to survive as a species. Um, look around. You see, you'll see um, down here at, at John Marshall Park, people from all different uh, diversity, all around the world. We're all fighting for the same cause. And, you know, why are we here? Well, we strike because we care. We strike because climate the climate crisis is real and the action is happening and a action is not happening and that needs to happen and our future is being stripped from us. Future is at risk. We are going to have we have one shot at this. One shot. We have 11 years and then it's over. This will only get worse. And so far from our action, the reaction from our leaders has been wrong. They have ignored us and have done exactly the opposite. Therefore, it's keeping us in a whirlpool of hypocrisy. This is not okay. And Climate Strikers will have the last word on today's show. That last young voice was a student named Ethan Vanderveer. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks to Gerald Horn. The music we played was Trouble in the Water with Common, Malik, Youssef, Kumasi, Aaron Fresh, Chocolate, and Lisi K. I Too Dream of Things Beautiful by Navasha Deya featuring Alan Johnson. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or subscribe and support on Patreon. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be at the 8th Street Festival in the Artist Alley in Northeast D.C. Saturday, September 21st, beginning at noon. And On The Ground's 5th anniversary celebration, Part 2, is September 28th, 5 to 10 p.m. at 1833. M Street in Northeast D.C. See On the Ground, 5th Anniversary Part 2 on Eventbrite or check our event on Facebook. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>